0: So our Georgia Barnett offering, part of what it does will help plant Hispanic churches in in Baton Rouge uh, and across the state, but also goes to disaster relief. Uh, I I believe part of our Georgia Barnett goes to disaster relief. Uh, I know part of what we give does, but this morning, as Jordan said, we're going to take a special offering at the end of the service, Uh, this normal offering uh, right after the message, That Anything that goes in the plate that isn't specifically designated at that point we'll we'll consider our general offering. Anything that goes in the plate as you leave we will consider as going to uh, disaster relief. Uh, If you write a check, of course, just make it to the church. You can put it in an envelope if you want to and write disaster relief on the envelope or you can write it in the memo of your check if you want to do that. Uh, But just keep those two times separate. It'll be a lot easier uh, on us to... To make, I guess, do we, yeah, should be able to do that. Maybe we have two bags. We can drop two separate deposits and take care of that. So that's what we're doing today. And uh, certainly continue to pray for uh, Houston, uh, Rockport, Corpus Christi. Uh, The the storm looks like it's, well, we know it's just going to sit there and make a little twist and then come toward Houston some more. So Houston's got days of it, and we may still have our chance. So whatever we, get to, whatever we give to disaster relief this morning, maybe we don't have to use in Louisiana. But I know I saw this morning 300 uh, Baptist students are going to Houston in the next day or two to, to start helping. I know disaster relief, some disaster relief from uh, Texas is already in Houston uh, making uh, cooking, providing meals. So disaster relief is already there so let's uh, do what we can to help them out I know also if you want to help uh, if you would like to go to Houston uh, we don't have anything particular planned but I I know that there will be people going so we can hook you up with uh, some Texas disaster relief if uh, there that's over there now or Louisiana may end up going here in the next few days uh, depending on what happens here in our state so lots of opportunities for you to help out uh, if we don't see the floods this time, we certainly know what it is, but uh, those folks over there need, so as you have opportunity, give or go. Take your Bibles, turn to chapter uh, 28 of Matthew, Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Uh, we're going to be working on a six-week series to go along with our Sunday school emphasis on evangelism, a uh, six-week sermon series, six weeks in, in uh Uh, Sunday school. I'm hoping there's a lot of overlap and as a matter of fact this morning I noticed that there was. uh, We talked about who is God and uh, that's going to be a question we discussed this morning. But The first thing we need to look at as we begin this evangelism series I felt like was what is evangelism. Now there's no one verse in the Bible that just clearly states what evangelism is. You may be surprised to learn that there is no one verse or even one passage in the Bible that clearly articulates everything that is the gospel. There, there's, there's no passage that begins with sinfulness. Uh, you know who God is and the sinfulness of man and what Jesus did and 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 how we should respond. There, there's just not the closest we can come. Uh, Ephesians chapter two. Has all of those elements in it, but not in that order. Uh, Peter's sermon uh, at uh, at Pentecost has most of those elements, but it doesn't. While it discusses the uh, context of the 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 sin of the listeners, their context, it, it doesn't discuss really the sinfulness of man. Uh, so there's just not a passage that, that we can pull and say. Here, here is the passage that answers the question, what is evangelism? So this morning, I'm going to be jumping around a little bit, something I normally don't like to do. Uh, I don't like topical sermons. I want to pick out a passage and go through that passage. And uh, just can't do that this morning and, and really answer the question of what is evangelism. So we're going to begin at our commission, uh, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 through 20. And then we'll uh, answer this question here in a few minutes. First, let's look at what evangelism isn't. Uh, that will help us get started. Um, I invited my co-worker to church. That's not evangelism. I told the girl in the drive through window that Jesus loves her. Not evangelism. I argued with someone on Facebook about creation versus evolution. Not evangelism. I voted for blank blank of the blank party. I left that open. I didn't. That's not evangelism either. That doesn't further the cause of the gospel. None of those are evangelism. And I could have given more examples. But any example that doesn't include the sharing of the gospel and a call for a response, and that's what we're going to look at today, is not evangelism. Matthew 28, 19 through 20 sets us up very well for what evangelism should look like. Read with me there. Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you, and remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. This gives us a very good jumping off point for what evangelism is. Uh, It it gives us some of it, to be honest, but not all of it, as we're going to see as we move through here. But our orders are clear. Our commission as a church, as the church, not just a church, but as the church, is clear. We are to make disciples. Uh, now, we must make converts before we make disciples. But I think too often, particularly as we, as Southern Baptists, focus on evangelism, and, and we have all sorts of campaigns to do so, we, we think converts without thinking disciples. And, and, and while I believe God leads us to witness to people on airplanes and, and buses and, and in places where we won't have the opportunity to disciple them personally, that must always be in the back of our mind as we witness to people. We want to make converts, but go back and read Matthew chapter 13 one more time. You can see that we can plant a seed that, for various reasons, can be Uh, ripped up, torn away, and not produce saving faith. That's where discipleship comes in. So that's why we must always be thinking disciple. And that's why Jesus said, go make disciples. He didn't say, uh, go make converts. So so that's what we have to think about as a church. Our orders are to make disciples, but we must make converts first. We don't want to disciple unbelievers. Uh, That's not a let me, let me say that a different way, it would be great if we can get people to come in and they begin uh, what some folks beca- would call pre-evangelism discipleship, or uh, you know, they begin to hear about the word and, and that convicts them, and that's okay, we are, we're discipling, but we don't want to bring folks in and just make them think they're okay because they're in church. Discipling unbelievers, that's what I'm talking about here. None of those actions I mentioned at the beginning, though, did either of these things. They didn't make disciples, nor did they make converts. Very possible that a couple of those could lead to evangelism or discipleship. Uh, Maybe someone does come to church. Maybe telling somebody uh, that Jesus loves them at the drive-thru sparks a conversation. Those are all maybe good uh, entrances, good leads into evangelism, but they aren't evangelism. They don't make converts or disciples. So we're going to have a definition this morning of what evangelism is, and that's what I'm going to talk about. Now, I borrowed this heavily from a, a pastor who pastors a church in Dubai. Uh, uh, um, I think Abu Dhabi. Is that in Dubai? Go with me there. I think, you know, We'll correct me later. Um, and And he wrote a book just titled Evangelism, it's a very small book, and he discusses evangelism, and this is his definition, J. Max Stiles is his name, he says, evangelism is teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade, teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. Now two things I want you to, uh, one thing in particular I want you to notice actually is that there's no prescribed outcome in this definition. And there's a reason he didn't put a prescribed outcome, because the outcome is not up to us. We don't control whether or not someone comes to Christ. That is the work, uh, work of the Holy Spirit and a response on their part. All we can do is be faithful to present the gospel. But what he says here, teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade is exactly right. We're gonna look at four of those words from the definition, teach, gospel, aim, and persuade. Again, this is why we're jumping around the passages this morning, There the passages this morning. There was no one passage that I could pull out and cover this, but I think this is an important definition for us to understand as we move forward because we don't want to have an incorrect idea of what evangelism is. Uh, Some very good things go under the label of evangelism, but they're not evangelism. So let's look at it. The first word this morning uh, in the definition we're going to look at is teaching. You must use words. I know I've said this before, but St. Francis of Assisi did not make the statement. Preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. And if he did... It doesn't matter, he was still wrong. We are to preach the gospel at all times. Preaching by definition, teaching by definition, uses words. As we're going to see, our actions back up those words, but the actions are never the gospel. Nowhere does the Bible tell us to live the gospel so people get it. We tell the gospel, we teach the gospel, we preach the gospel, and then our actions lead them to. To, or help them to believe the gospel we preach. But the flip side is also true, folks. Our actions can also turn them away from the gospel. Uh, it is credited to Gandhi for saying, I would believe in your Christ if it wasn't for you Christians. So we have to be careful what we do. John 1:1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and uh, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Himself was the word. Jesus taught. The Great Commission tells us, teach them everything I have commanded you. Make disciples, baptize them, teach them everything that I have taught you. Jesus, every time he performed a miracle, used that as an opportunity to teach. He never just performed the miracle and walked away and said, "Mm, my actions should be enough to share the gospel with them, he taught them. He taught the crowds and the disciples. We see that in Mark 6, we see it in Luke 9, we see it in Matthew 5. In those instances, he fed the people, but he never just fed them physical food without uh, feeding them the spiritual food. He taught at every opportunity. As a matter of fact, what we have throughout the gospels is him over and over and over teaching. His his term, uh, what they called him, master, rabbi, teacher, was What they were calling. That's what they knew him as until they understood him more deeply as the Messiah. He was a teacher to them, teaching them the gospel, teaching them of himself. Paul was a teacher and he commanded us to teach. Verses uh, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Over and over, Paul talks about teaching. If you you read his letters. His letters were teaching. Romans taught the gospel. Galatians was teaching them how to uh, recognize a false gospel when it, was taught, when it was taught. Over and over and over, Paul taught because he knew the word was the power. The word, Jesus, was the power. He knew, Paul knew, that the gospel was the power. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, of this spoken message because it is the power of God for salvation he understood the power of his words so in order to teach then we must know what to teach and as I said earlier we must live what we teach if we say the gospel is salvation why aren't we living like saved people If we say the gospel transforms our lives, why aren't we living transformed lives? If we say the gospel takes away sin, if we say the gospel purifies, if we say the gospel changes us, makes us a new creature, which the Bible says it does, then why do we sometimes look like the same old creature? I would believe in your Christ if it weren't for you Christians. We must know what to teach, and we must live what we teach. I've told you before as well that if you are saved, if you are truly converted, then you know enough of the gospel to tell somebody else how to be saved. Because you should know how you got saved. You should know what happened in you when you accepted Christ. You should be able to tell somebody else that. If you can't articulate it, we have an issue You need to check your heart and say, if I cannot articulate my own salvation, is there any salvation there? If you say, I got saved because I went to church, no, you didn't. If you say, I'm saved because I've got my membership on a roll or I got dunked one time, no, you did not. If you cannot articulate your sinfulness and the saving power of Jesus Christ, you're placing your faith and trust in Him and Him cleansing you and you turning your life around then there's a problem. You need to know what to teach, and you need to live what you teach. The second word we're going to look at in the definition is gospel. Evangelism is teaching the gospel. Gospel just means good news. We have one message. We have a lot of things that we teach, a lot of topics we teach on, a lot of opportunities to share with people Various belief systems, we have an opportunity to speak out against sin. We have an opportunity regularly to stand up for uh, the, uh, the, the poor, the, the beggar, the widow, the orphan, the, the, the innocent, the defenseless. Those are all things that we do as Christians. But above all of those things, we have one message, and that is the gospel 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 5 and verse 15, and I've condensed it a little bit. Uh, If you want to go and read that, you can, but it's on the screen there for you. Paul says, now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you. So Paul is saying, here's what I preached, here is the gospel. Verse 3, for I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then in verse 15, he says, and so you believed. That's the essence of the gospel. That's what Paul is saying here. Now, there is more to the gospel, I, I don't want to mean I'm adding to the gospel, but there needs to be an understanding of the hearer, their own sinfulness, Paul talks about that, died for our sins, but what does that mean? Who do we sin against? What, what does sin look like? Those are all uh, things we must discuss in an evangelistic setting. But Paul covers it right here. The Great Commission, again, says to teach. We, we teach people this this message. Why do you preach on the gospel so much, Michael? Why why you share the gospel every week? Why do some sermons just only cover the gospel? Well, because it's over and over and over in Scripture. So if I'm going to preach Scripture regularly, if I'm going to teach Scripture in order, we're going to hit the gospel a bunch of times, and it should never grow old. How 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 many times? This, there's a lady uh, in Massachusetts just this week that won a 700, What was it? $782 million lottery. How many times will she get tired of thinking about, well, I just won the lottery. Boy, I wish y'all quit bringing it up that I won the lottery because, you know, I, I, it's not that big a deal. Well, th- that's what some of us do when we sit in church and we hear the gospel preached again. I wish we could just move on from the lottery I won, the, the grace that I got, the salvation that I have that I didn't deserve, we should never grow tired of hearing that. We teach that over and over and over. Now, we need to do uh, be careful of two things. We should not make the gospel too small. We should not shrink the gospel. Uh, the gospel is more than fire insurance. The gospel is more than a get-out-of-hell-free card. We don't want to just say, hey, pray this prayer, uh, walk this aisle, uh, be dunked in this baptistry and, and you're good. That's, you know, and, and, and you don't have to worry about life anymore. Everything's good. Just you're fine. Uh, no, there is more to, that, to the gospel than that. The gospel informs the way we live. The gospel is a life change. Repentance is going the other direction. When Paul says that we are new creatures, new creations, that is something totally different from what we were. That's the power of the gospel. So if we are saying, we make the gospel too small if we think it's just one more X, uh, one more uh, box we check and everything's good after that. There's more to the gospel than that. Don't make the gospel too small, but also don't make the gospel too small. Too big. Don't inflate it. Don't add to it. The gospel does not require works. If you're here on Sunday nights, we're going through that with Galatians. It does not require anything on our part, any outward show, any uh, uh, further responsibilities to earn the salvation. Does gospel require us to do certain things? Yes. It changes our entire life, but not for our salvation. Nothing else saves us but the gospel message. We don't want to make it too big by saying that the gospel makes us rich or healthy or wealthy or wise, you know, it doesn't no more, no, none of this you know, come to Jesus and everything will be fine in your life. Uh, the, you know, the joke on, on uh, Facebook last day or two between me and Jordan, uh, he, he saw me on TV and I said, you yeah, know, all those TV preachers that ever do is ask for money, um, and I'm not going to give a one eight hundred number or anything for the camera. So know I'm, I'm not doing that. But it they 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 say that there's this blessing if you'll just if you'll just come to Jesus, everything will be fine in your life. Bull. There are a lot of saved people right now in Houston that are losing their homes. Where where was where's the salvation that makes everything perfect? in the midst of a flood caused by a hurricane. We don't have to go to Houston. We can go back toward Denham Springs last year. Or we can go back here 12 years ago with Rita. We can go right here every time it rains a little hard to Brian Craddock's house, who's flooded, what, four times in the last two months, three times in the last two months? If Jesus fixes everything like that, then... And where was he? Or we bloat our gospel and say that it does more than it does. Jesus gets us through those things. Does not protect us from those things. In this life, you will have troubles. You you, uh, count it all joy when you suffer. And on and on and on and on. So don't inflate it. What, What is the gospel? How would we define it? A working definition, again, from uh, this this author in Dubai, Max Stiles. The gospel is the joyful message from God that leads to salvation. The gospel answers four big questions it answers who is God? And that was our Sunday school lesson this morning. Who is God? Creator of the universe, master of everything completely loving, completely holy, completely just, who will one day judge the nations. And he will judge them with righteousness. He will judge them righteously, and he will judge them rightly. Every one of us will stand before the throne of judgment. And he will separate the sheep and the goats. That's who God is. He is offended by our sin. He is... Uh, incapable of sinning himself. He is incapable of being in the presence. He will not allow sin into his presence. So sinful people are condemned to hell by their own action. That's who God is. The gospel must explain that. The gospel must also explain who are we or man. We are the sinners. We are the ones bound by our sin but willfully bound by our sin. We choose our our fate. We choose our eternity. We choose to be separated from God. And it's our sinfulness that separates us. And we can do nothing about our sinfulness. We cannot overcome our sin, our sin nature. We're done. We're sunk. We're hopeless without Christ. That's who we are. The gospel must say that. The gospel we share, the message we share must say that. The third thing the gospel that we share, the message we share must explain is what did Christ do or Christ? So God, man, Christ. Christ is the sinless son of God. Christ is God, but the sinless son of God who came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, a death he did not deserve, but, but I did, took my sin and took my place he was my substitute, who took the punishment for my sin, died on that cross. Three days later, rose from the grave to prove he had conquered death, to prove he had conquered sin. Because he could have said he conquered sin, but if he didn't conquer death, where conquer death? Where's the proof? He conquered death. He proved himself more powerful than sin, rose on the third day, now sits at the right hand of the Father, ever interceding for those who believe. That's who Jesus is. And he says, come. He says, believe in me. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father except by me. The gospel message must tell people about Jesus. It must tell people about their sinfulness, their need for Jesus. And it must tell people about what their sinfulness does or to whom it does, which is God. It offends a holy God. Lastly, the gospel message must explain how we get to God. All right, if, if we don't give the punchline, what good is it? God's holy and just. You're not. But Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Have a good day. Close the deal. Uh, I am no salesman. Uh, the few times I've had to actually try to sell things, I'm horrible at it. I, I, I would not be a good car car salesman if they came in and they said, "We're looking for a car." And I'd go like, uh-huh, "We got a bunch. Pick you one. Pick you the one you like, and I'll we'll do the paperwork later." I mean, that that's you know, I'm not going to try to convince them to buy something they don't want. I, I'm not good at at closing the deal. But when it comes to evangelism, we have to close the deal. Remember, we are not responsible for the outcome. That's that's between the person and God. But if we don't share with them how to close the deal, what kind of fools are we? What kind of salesman, car salesman, would would have somebody in the parking lot and say, alright, this is a great car, uh, it's got all the bells and whistles you want, you, you've got 28 kids like the Lintons do, but this is the car you need, it's big, it'll hold it all, uh, leather seats for all the stuff they're going to spill, and it's got the window between the driver's, uh, the, the front seats and the back seats so you can close them off, you don't have to hear them scream, and uh, you, it, it, this is perfect for you, and you, you're all, great, that is, that is the perfect car, and the salesman walks, he looks at you and goes, I am so glad. And leaves. Um, how do I get the car? How, this is exactly what I need. How do I get it? Well, that salesman's not going to be around long, but that's what we do often in evangelism. We explain what they, what, their sinfulness. We, they, they get it. They're, they're, what, what must I do to be saved? The folks cried out when Peter preached his sermon. In Acts chapter 2. Because he made it clear there was a need. What must I do to be saved? Peter said, come back next week. Send me $50. And I'll send you some anointing oil. And a prayer rag we prayed over. No. What must I do to be saved? Repent and be baptized. For the forgiveness of sins. Was what Peter said. We've got to tell them how they can respond. Repent. Believe on Jesus Christ. Trust him for your salvation. Is it that easy, Michael? They're going to ask that question. Really? I don't have to give money. I don't have to go to church. I don't have to join anything. No, you don't. And you will want to once you have Christ in you. But no, you don't have to to receive salvation. How do we get to God? That's the gospel. Who is God? Who are we? What did Christ do? And how do we get to, to God? Third thing in this definition is the aim. Evangelism is teaching the gospel with the aim. One purpose. We have one purpose. 1 Peter 3.15 Ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Ready to share. My aim is to share. My aim is not just to tell people, but my aim is to give them the gospel. Get them to a particular point. Get them to a decision. Everybody we talk to has one of two possible eternal destinies. Eternal life or eternal death. Everyone you meet go in one of two places. You may you're gonna come across Christians and, and you're gonna start talking about the gospel to them and they go, Oh, I believe that. And you go, Oh, really? Well, tell me what you believe. And they're, you know, they just give you the gospel and you're like, man, you good. But most people you come across are not going to have the gospel. They're not going to be able to explain it. So we need to draw the net. We launch out. We cast our nets. But what, based on last week's message, what would we have thought of the disciples if when they started pulling up those nets, man, it's the biggest catch ever. Woo, this is awesome. Just let go. Eh. It's this car salesman that doesn't, tell them how to buy the car it's it's the fisherman that lets go of the net when it's full it's the christian that when we have the opportunity to share the gospel and we we do share the gospel we don't draw the net we don't pull them in we say come back next week same bat time same bat channel hoping that they'll spend a little more time with us why i don't know maybe we're worried that they're not going to uh respond that's not up to us We must draw the net. We're not just sharing information. Here, let me tell you about Jesus so you can know more about Jesus. We're not just uh, giving them uh, facts. We have an end goal. We have an aim. We have a purpose in what we're doing. To get them to respond to the gospel. To get them to make a decision. That day, that moment. Now's your time for a decision. Not tomorrow or the next day or the next day, but now. And they might say no. Statistically, most of them are going to say no. But that's okay. If you're, if you're uh, doing vertical church in the e-group, we, we learned a few weeks ago that Christians are the aroma, help me out if y'all, if y'all are, that are doing it, or if you remember, are the aroma of life. To those who believe, but to those who deny, who, to those who are not believing, to those who say no to the gospel, we're the aroma of death. What I got from that, among other things, is that we have a purpose regardless of the response of the person. We are either going to be the aroma of life, absolutely, I'd never thought about it. I want this, this, this faith that you talk about, I want this Jesus. Or they're going to turn against it and say, absolutely not, that's nothing that I want. You stink to me. But we have put them in a position where they have to make a decision. We have to draw the net. But having this aim, having this uh, focus, this goal affects our attitudes and our actions in our relationships. Every person we come into contact with, we should think, One of two places, one of two eternities. How is my interaction right now going to, one, set me up for the opportunity to share the gospel, and two, give credence to the gospel I share? You know, If you're yelling at your waitress because she didn't refill your tea glass, and you give her a dollar tip on your $75 meal, and then try to tell her about Jesus on your way out the door, your actions are not going to line up with your words. You have not uh, engendered that person to you or to the gospel you want to share. But if you are gracious and loving and compassionate and share the truth of the gospel, then who knows? Who knows what God's going to do? Because you didn't yell because you didn't... uh, Uh, Fill up your glass. And you did give her a $20 tip on your $75 bill. And now she's wondering, hmm, why? Why would you do? Compassion. Love. Jesus. That's why. So our aim affects our attitudes and our actions. And then lastly, we persuade. We have an ongoing desire, an ongoing activity, an ongoing action In our lives to see people come to Christ. And not just a few people. Not just a few that we interact with. But everyone that we interact with. 2 Corinthians 5.11, therefore, since we know the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade people. Therefore, since we know the truth of the gospel, we know what's going to happen, we know the end for those who don't trust Christ, we try to persuade people. We don't take no for an answer. Y'all, this is what I'm horrible at. This is why I'm not a good salesman. This is why I would never make it on a car lot. Because... I when when people say no, when people are am mm, uninterested, you know, I'm like, all oh, right, I don't want to offend you, I don't want to make you mad, I don't want to make you upset, I, I want you to like me, uh, if you do at all, anyway. I mean, I want you to. I, I don't want to mess up that relationship. We know the fear of the Lord. We know what's coming. You know uh, that there's a uh, one of these. Cajun jokes that uh, I think Debbie Davenport shared it. I'm not going to get it right because I'm a horrible joke teller. Uh, I'll just give you the punchline because that's the funny part. Uh, you know the the two Cajun preachers were the, the the road the bridge was out, and they stood on the side of the road with a big sign said the end is near the end is near the end is near, and people would honk at them and and yell at them and cuss at them for being religious zealots and that kind of thing and they'd go off the Bridge and the, the punchline is one of them looks the other and they say well, shouldn't we just say the bridge is out, you know that that you know say I'm a horrible joke teller but thank you for laughing anyway I appreciate it uh, look it up online it's funnier when when funny people tell it um, would we stand at the side of the road and say the bridge is out and they said no it's not all right die I don't care I told you once. If you don't get it, it's not my fault. No, aren't we going to, no, hey, God, the bridge, the bridge, stop, stop, the bridge is out. Folks, hey, stop, stop, eternity is forever and you're going to die and go to hell. Don't we want them to get that? We persuade because we know the fear of the Lord. Persuasion is not manipulation though. It's be careful. It's not we are trying to uh, you know, squeeze their emotions and and, 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 oh, you know, if, 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 if you loved your family, you'd, you'd go to church and those kinds of things. That's not what we're doing. We're not trying to manipulate a decision out of them. We're not asking people to bow your head, close your eyes, and, and if you if you've, uh, repeat this prayer after me, and if you repeated this prayer for the first time, raise your hand, and if you raise your hand, come down front, you came down front, let's get baptized, and you get baptized. Let's, you know, we're not doing that. We are seeking true conversion, but we want to persuade people. Please, come to Christ. Respond to this message. What part of it don't you get? What part can I explain one more time to persuade you that this is the truth? Persuasion does not put the result on us. Remember, it's not up to us, it's up to the Holy Spirit. It does not put the result on us. So the fact that we persuade, the fact that we hang in there, the fact that we continue, uh, continually tell them the bridge is out, the bridge is out, don't go that way, you're going to die, the bridge is out, does not mean the result is on us. They still have the responsibility to, to respond. But we have the responsibility to take every opportunity to share the gospel and persuade. Persuasion Implies repeated attempts. You have people in your life that will not listen to you. They'll tell you, "Don't, don't bring up the Bible to me anymore." I I had a, a friend in Nixon who had a neighbor that told him that a couple of times. And you know what my friend would do when he'd go visit him? I know what you told me, but I can't not do it. You need Christ. You need Jesus. He can save you. I want to hear it. Okay. I'll talk to you again some other time about it. I mean, he, he just, he, he was determined. Because the message is too important not to share, the message is too important not to continually go back with. They don't want to hear it. Y'all, none of us want to hear we're wrong. None of us want to hear that what we've believed is the wrong belief. Nobody does. Yet we persuade because we know the fear of the Lord. So what does true conversion look like? I think we need to briefly discuss that. True conversion is not just a change of mind. Oh, I didn't think Jesus was really Son of God. Now I do. It's not just a change of mind. It's not just a change of heart. Oh, boy, I need to be better than I was. I was bad, but now I'll be good. It's not just a good feeling. Oh, thank you for that message. I feel so good when I when I hear the gospel preached like that. Oh, it just gives me the warm fuzzies. It's not just tears and guilt. Oh, I know how bad I am. And oh, it's a horrible feeling. And and boy, I wish I could be better. It's not turning over a new leaf. It's not, yay, I'm going to be something different from now on. I'm I'm empowered. Uh, I, I am ready to face the world because I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me, and and all I have to do is just think positive and I'll be okay. It's, it's not those things. Though those parts may show up in a conversion and lead to a true conversion, those are not conversion. Conversion is repentance from our sin, genuine faith in Christ, and a changed life lived for Jesus. That's what conversion is. Conversion's obvious. Uh, The author, Max Stiles, of that book tells a a story of going to a synagogue to listen to uh, a a Civil War naval historian give uh, a lecture on Civil War naval history. Go figure. Um, In the midst of his 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 speech and he knew his stuff and he delivered it well and all this stuff in the midst of his speech the fire alarm went off in the synagogue. And everybody in there in this packed room, he stopped and he was, you know, thrown off by it and oh goodness, what in the world are we, you know, that that's annoying and, and everybody in they, they start, you know, murmuring and wonder what's the problem? Did somebody pull it on accident? Is there really a fire? Or what's wonder what's going on. One person got up and walked out. The rest of them just sat there. After a couple of minutes, the fire alarm went off, and the the speaker gathered himself, and he started back his lecture, and, and that was it, and they went on. But the author said, if this were a parable, a picture of conversion, who was converted? The man who got up and left. The rest of them heard the message, the flashing lights, the blaring horn. But they discussed, is it really as bad as they're saying? Maybe there's no fire at all. Maybe it's not even true. This could be a false alarm. But even if they thought it was a fire, well, there really could be a fire in the building. Nobody responded, save that one man. That's what we see. All those people that stayed weren't converted to belief that there was a fire in that building. One person responded. And how do we know he responded? His life changed. He changed location. He turned around. He walked out. There was an obvious difference in his life than everyone else in there. He was converted by the message of the fire alarm. We must look for, pray for, True conversion. Because there is a fire at the end. There is uh, an alarm flashing. There are horns blaring telling us the end is near. The bridge is out. And we want true conversion that leads, leads to change. So this morning, have you trusted Christ as your Savior? Have you experienced true conversion that leads to change. The gospel is very clear. Just like I shared with you a few minutes ago, I'm going to share with you again. God, man, man, Christ, repentance. God is holy and just. And there will be a punishment for our sinfulness, our disobedience, our lawlessness, our rebellion against him, our uh, state of being his enemy, which is what the Bible calls us, He will judge that someday. It will come. The end is near. We are sinful. We deserve that punishment. There is nothing we can do about our sinfulness. We are fallen and we are destined for everlasting torment and judgment. And there is absolutely nothing we can do on our own to fix that sin problem. To give us a destination than. ...than eternal judgment. So God sent Jesus. Jesus is the fix. Jesus, the perfect son of God... ...who who lived on earth... ...never sinned... ...so that when the time came... ...he could take sin on our behalf... ...take both our punishment... ...and our sinfulness... ...and crucify both of them... ...for all of us... ...for all men... ...take our place dying for all people, and then rose three days later. Because he said he could defeat our sin, but who knows if that really happened. He also said he could defeat death. Well, if he can do that, then chances are he can take on the sin issue. And lo and behold, three days later, he came out of the grave, proved he could defeat death, and therefore promised, I defeated sin too. And we said, you are exactly who you said you are. That's Jesus. And then we must, to get to God, must respond to that. We repent of our sin, we place our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation by believing in Him, trusting Him, believing that He was who He said He is, trusting that we cannot save ourselves, only by the blood of Jesus can we be saved, but not automatically, not just because He died for everybody, but we must respond in faith to receive that salvation, and then... We get up out of the room that the, 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 where the fire alarm's going off, and we leave. We have a response. We have a life change because of it. Our lives are different. Repent and follow him. Live for him. That's the gospel. This morning, have you, have you believed that gospel? We'll have an opportunity here in a minute for you to, to come and pray with me pray to receive Christ prayer doesn't save you, belief saves you a walk down front doesn't save you your belief saves you, but maybe you want to express that this morning maybe you want me to pray with you pray for you, explain it a little further maybe you don't want to do it up here this morning you want to do it afterwards in the the reception area out here don't put it off though maybe you're watching this at home online or on TV but you want to trust Christ do it Place your faith in Him now. Trust Him now. Do it this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your gospel that is clearly expressed, clearly stated, for a gospel that saves, for a gospel that's not complicated, but takes a lot of faith. Lord, thank You that You did not choose to leave us in our rebellion, but you instead chose to save us. Thank you for sending your son. And this morning, if there's someone listening that hasn't trusted you as Savior, that they would understand their sinfulness, repent of that, trust Jesus today, call on you, call on him for salvation. Lord, there may be other decisions this morning. Believers need to pray at the altar. Things, uh, something in their hearts need to be given to you. As we... Sing this morning. We pray that you would work in every heart. In Jesus' name, amen. So what's your decision? You want to join the church? You want to trust Christ? You want to leave something at the altar this morning? You do that. But let's stand in that us sing. And while we do so, you do business with God today.